Hi, and welcome to Discourse. I'm Ian. And I'm John. And this is the only podcast where we can't how many S's are in the word. <laughs> <laughs> how many S's is this? Yeah. Anyways, uh, so this is Discourse where we talk about two topics of interest that came up to us during the week, talk about them, maybe make fun of each other, and hopefully mm-hmm. interest people in the topic. Uh, this is the first time we tried recording since I moved last week, so I'm now in Atlanta and John is back in Buffalo. Uh, so far away. <laughs> so hopefully everything works out. Uh, anyways, what did you bring this time? I brought a short discussion on the opioid epidemic that our nation is facing. Good, and I brought a short discussion on the dichotomy of good and evil. <laughs> 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 well, once again, uh, for our listeners, we have no idea what the other person is bringing every week. So any sort of connections that we draw are just on the fly. Um, before we keep going, because that was like peaking a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say move your mic back a little because the uh, when you get louder, that's when it gets grainy. Right. Okay. Sorry. So how is it now? That's good. And like, even if I get louder? Oh, it's okay. But it's better than it was. Okay, that's good. Yeah. All right. So, uh, I guess I'll go first. All right. Um, So the the way I came up with this idea is uh, because of conversations I've had with people regarding uh, spirituality, you know, good and evil, small stuff in life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So... I was talking to people about how culture is created by people and because culture is created by people and religions uh, can be debated on whether they're created by the culture or created by a God or mm-hmm. a being, um, what kind, like what constitutes good and evil. Um, you know, usually what your society believes is what you think is evil. Like we think it's weird to eat dogs, but in other countries they eat dogs. Sure. Um, so usually what it comes down to is when I tell people I don't believe in good and evil, they're like, are you a serial killer? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, maybe. <laughs> As I reach into my pocket. <laughs> well, but, I, feel um, like there's, I feel like there's morality, and that's like, I don't know if that's the same discussion as good and evil. Yeah, so what they usually, like, the argument I get into is not, like, it's not that I don't believe there is good and evil as determined by, like, American culture for us, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. our culture says don't walk out in the street and kill someone. (laughs) Right. So that's evil by our culture, but what I'm talking about is good and evil as in, like, is there pure good and pure evil? Well, it kind of sounds like you're talking about absolutes, and we, we can't really, as puny humans, we can't really understand absolutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's what, so, like, it was really hard to, like, figure out how to condense this and do a conversation that wasn't a PhD thesis. <laughs> right. Um, but so where I think I started thinking about this was in the Bible's lit class I took at our school. Mm-hmm. Um, and which, at one point, the professor said, um, in the Bible, whether you believe it or not, like, you have to take God as the arbiter of all good in that story. Hmm. Um, and, but then I was like, you know, if we ask this, if we take God as being the arbiter of all good, and we wonder who created God, is God like a smaller piece of a bigger cosmic 
goodness or something. Very a god above a god above a god above a god. God's all the way down. <laughs> God's all the way down and God's all the way up. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, but like, so you know, you have to ask uh, who made God and is God good? And is there a force greater than God? Um, and like, no, these are unanswerable questions, but they're fun to think about. So sure. like in Abrahamic religions, evil is usually something that has to be conquered by good. Whereas in like Buddhist centered centered cultures, good and evil are both an, like in an antagonistic duality, uh, which has to become over through I'm trying to figure out how to say this word. I think it's shunyada, mm-hmm. um, which means emptiness. Okay. Um, and you know, like I'm clear, like I I'm not a Buddhist monk or master, so uh, my understanding of these things is very basic. But uh, basically, it's the idea that, you know, good and evil are not uh, reality. They're something we struggle through to find true reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, I wonder, like, um, that's, I think that's what you use meditation to achieve. But also, um, I think very rarely, I've not reached, I'm not going to say I've reached, like, nirvana, but I've reached, like, a, a space of, like, empty floating comfortness where i feel good when i'm like laying down or just meditating or thinking and i kind of see where they're coming from with that nice um it seems to me that good and evil are human created concepts and there are things that lean one way or the other towards emptiness like um it's good to like help your fellow man but it's probably better to help them help themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're trying to reach a state where, like, it's not the, 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 maybe the empty ideal isn't like everyone is happy all the time, but everyone is willing to help everyone be happy all the time. Okay. But then I'm like, what's someone's idea of happiness? Like, you know, going outside and kicking a puppy. Well, then they're just wired very differently. Like, are humans the only uh, beings that matter? I don't think so, but, I mean, you could kind of argue that if you don't believe we're part of the animal kingdom. Well, I think you brought this up last week. Um, in, in Victor E. Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, I finally listened to that, by the way. <laughs> oh, nice. And again, that reminds me of that story of the gorilla who was used in polio research. Like, he was, this gorilla was being stuck with needles every day of its life. It was suffering. And to to a casual observer, you would ask, do you think that gorilla understood the purpose of its suffering? And I mean, probably not. It doesn't know what uh, viruses are. It doesn't know what vaccines are. It doesn't understand the, the rigors of research. So how are we supposed to understand what's good or what's evil in our lives, what's necessary and what's frivolous? Yeah, and that's why it always bothers me that humans have higher reasoning abilities. Because Mm -hmm. in my mind, like, I I would say there is no evil, um, which is something that I'll get to later. Um, but that there's only less good. And it's like in space, there is no 
cold is only less hot. I think that's how it is. Yeah, yeah, that is. Um, but, uh, like, if we're going to go by basic instincts, you know, like, eat, sleep, uh, procreate, um, then we have, like, there is good, what is good to us and what is evil to the other. We have to kill animals to eat their meat. We don't have to anymore, but we used to have to. Um, and to that animal, that's evil, but to us, that's like, Mm -hmm. um but yeah so sometimes you know evil is also a supernatural force and it's often aligned with selfish behavior or imbalance or ignorance and neglect don't be the negative things we think about in our society very much in line with those uh seven sins right yeah yeah or well not even necessary well for abrahamic face yeah normal be like maybe you don't visit your grandfather enough or whatever. Like, maybe it's not like a, an evil act and it's to do something you should do and you're not actually, like, it's not evil wasn't like, I went out and robbed the bank. It's evil wasn't like, I just don't talk to people enough or whatever. Well, I mean, that's kind of like sloth, isn't it? Yeah. On a, on a very basic level, that's uh, mm -hmm. unwillingness, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so there's, yeah, like I said, way too many philosophies to go super deeply into this. Uh, yeah. But I found some really interesting concepts, uh, like such as that because God created the universe and said that it is good, there is no reality evil can ever have. Like everything negative in our universe ultimately works. That's Lewis' way of looking at it. Okay. Um, like even like the thing. Um, uh, and then there is only evil and rela uh, relationship to man, such as I said before, like a poisonous snake is evil if it bites us, but it's only because it can hurt us, not because it's like inherently evil. Well, wait, did you just say that a poisonous snake is evil because it could bite us or if it bites us? Um, it's evil to us because it has the potential to hurt us. Well, can't you say that about, like, a desk that you can bash your head on? Yeah, but I think it's, I would relate to sentient beings. Like, if, if the desk hurts you, it's probably your fault or someone else's fault. <laughs> well, unless you believe in vitalism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, in the Abrahamic faith, life is viewed as a test of morality, where evil is what keeps us from discovering God. In order to return to God, we have to choose not to be evil. So, like, where we are now is, like, a testing ground to, like, gain ourselves back to uh, divinity. Hmm. Which I think is really interesting, but also, like, horrifying. <laughs> that we're constantly being tested? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, um, that, it's like, okay. it, it turns out that every anxiety is just testing anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. That, this morning would have been awful with my job interview. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, and then uh, there's, in philosophy, this platonic goodness, which is the idea that goodness exists in objects, and in, in it's, uh, those objects have, like, a right relationship as um, to all other objects, and we have to find, like, that balance. Mm -hmm. um, and then that goodness is determined by some other realm, you know, heaven or whatever you want to say it is. Mm. 
And then there are welfarist theories that say things are good because they benefit humans, which is kind of like the idea that a snake is evil because it can hurt us, but mm -hmm. also where you could like kill the snake and make like shoes out of it or something. Or you could like use that same venom that would hurt you and make an anti-venom that could save someone else. Yeah. Um, and I think you know that's really like it's like a. a do you think about objects? Um, mm -hmm. Or even like, you know, like work, like, yeah, my work might be evil because I hate it, but it also provides me with money to live. True. Um, uh, eat, sleep, and procreate. Yeah. Um, so then basically what I found most interesting out of all of these, and I tried to boil these down into like one or two sentences, mm -hmm. was I did uh, four concepts. Moral absolutism. Good and evil are fixed and established by a deity or deities or nature, morality. Which to me that implies that there is like, you know, implicit good and evil and uh, they exist and you can strive to be one or the other or somewhere like between. Uh, amoralism claims that good and evil are meaningless and there is no moral ingredient in nature, which I almost agree with. Um, I but. would say I would say that's entirely true if we did, had, did not have the ability to reason. Um, which is why I think moral relativism holds that, which is uh, good and evil are only products of local culture, custom, or prejudice, is what's true for us. Mm -hmm. But then there's moral universalism, is which is the attempt to find a compromise between the absolute absolutist sense of morality and the relative. And it claims that morality is only flexible to a degree, and that what is truly good and evil can be determined by examining what is commonly considered to be evil amongst all humans. Okay. Which is very difficult when you think of, like, um, you know, I most cultures say, like, don't eat other humans, or don't eat your dead also. Mm -hmm. But then there are cultures where that's, like, the greatest honor is to eat, like, you know, the deceased ancestors. Yeah, definitely. Even so I though think it results in, like, prion diseases. Yeah, I, I think it's very, very difficult to find, like, something evil among all humans. Because mm -hmm. then, like, uh, like, I was talking to Rodney, and she said, um, like, almost all cultures have, like, don't kill other people. And I was like, true. But then you go back to, like, Sparta or something, and you're like, you know, the survival of the fittest, like, they literally killed their babies. <laughs> Very true, and there are like rites of passage in some cultures where yeah, you, you have to go out and kill someone or like uh, go hunt ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I don't know. Like, I would say more relativism for me is mostly uh, true, and you have to take into the context like where people are and what they're thinking before you can pronounce them as like good or evil. Oh, definitely. No, I'm definitely in the same boat. Everything is relative. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's all I've really got for the dichotomy of good and evil, unless you have something else you want to add. Hmm. Um, well, just thinking for a sec about... Uh, I don't know, can we think of some examples of recent news or something where... Okay, so <laughs> we're going to go here. Sure. Um, so the border uh, uh, yeah. and the camps. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's weird because for me, it's weird. Like, I don't like the camps. Uh, I imagine the immigrants don't either. Yeah, but I don't, I, what I do support is um, stronger immigration policies. Mm-hmm. Because what it seems to me is that things like this have been happening since before. And people kept saying, like, hey, there's a problem at the border, and they just ignored it. And now we're at the point where we can't ignore it anymore. Yeah. And then with the current administration handling things the way they're handling it, it's mm-hmm. just gotten out of control. Um, so, like, I don't know. I think I was somehow going to get, like, hate mail for this. <laughs> um, yeah, right. I think that there is a reason that, like, if you are... In an ideal world, there would be no illegal immigrants because there would be no borders, you know. Um, well, in an ideal world, there wouldn't be conditions that people would be running away from. It's yeah. like pe- people choose to change because their their past is unsavory and their future is desirable, and there is like an impetus to change. Uh, if they're running to our borders, it's quite often because they have they don't really have a life back where they've come from whether it's because they don't have work they don't have medicine or like uh like crime is threatening their family is a story that i hear a lot it's yeah. like people if people can't go back and they can't go in our country then where are they gonna go it's not like these camps along the border is, is a good option but where, where else are they gonna go so like that's what i totally agree with is like you know, in a perfect world, there would be no reason to run. Mm-hmm. But if you choose to come to or go to another country and sneak in illegally um, and you get sent back, like America or whatever country you chose to go to, it's not their job to take care of you. Right. So like, like they, yeah, it sucks that it's, or it's worse than it sucks. It's like the worst thing you can imagine, but like it's not america's job to take care of you and like even with my dad when he says like we came through legally during the cold war during mm-hmm. from behind the iron curtain um yeah like um you know like you made it into a country legally and i get that not everyone has time or a way to do that but we can't be, like, everyone's protector and big brother. Well, it depends on which president you ask. Well, see, like, I don't know, that just comes down to, like, is it the government's job to, like, serve all of its people equally fairly, or is it its job to make sure that people have the chance to succeed? Well, see, I study public health. So I, I do believe that the government should serve its people if its people are willing to serve it in the forms of, like, taxes and military service. Yeah. Uh, it's like, why would you send out a soldier if you can't take care of them when they come back, possibly disfigured and or traumatized? Yeah. Um, and that's, this is, like, that's something I totally agree with. Um, and then I don't even know the answer to this, but, like, in countries where there is socialized health care, if it's an illegal immigrant, can they even uh, have access to that? Well, I know if you get hurt in Canada that you can use Canada's health care system. 
that they're usually pretty chill about that. Yeah. But I don't know about, like, extended stay. Like, if you try to make a new life there without being a citizen. Yeah. I'm sure someone along the line is going to come along and be like, hey, you should at least be a citizen. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know, like, see, like, I, it's very, like, a murky line there, where, like, I, I think everyone has the option to try and make their life better, but also, like, if you get caught, you get caught. Mm-hmm. Um, what I don't agree with is, you know, filthy camps that are overcrowded and children separated from parents and whatever else awful is going on down there. Yeah, weren't you, uh, didn't you read an article about uh, someone who's actually studying concentration camps and comparing the border conditions to historical concentration camps? So, Ocasio Cortez, I think that's how you say her name. Mm-hmm. Um, she AOC. Yeah, AOC. She um, she called the camps after visiting concentration camps, and the Republicans were like, uh, that's insulting to the history of World War II survivors and their descendants. And then she was like, hey, historians, are these concentration camps? And they were like, yeah. Oh. Um, but now there's that whole argument going on with that fun. Right. Um, yeah, they're more or less... See, and I think the word concentration camp has become synonymous with extermination camp. Yeah. Which is the problem. Like, they are concentration camps. They're not extermination camps. Right, just like we had on the West Coast after Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Those were concentration camps, Which, not necessarily extermination camps, but they were still very wrong. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't even know where to go from here with this. <laughs> well, I guess we could uh, point our moral relativistic views onto this camp thing and, and try to see multiple sides it's like are they trying to protect our country and protect our interests or are they damning these innocent folk looking for a better life and who can't find it in their country well yeah but what are we what is america going to do long term like when entire countries are emptying out and coming to america there's already i mean we have space in central america but there's not much of a life there unless you're a farmer right <laughs> but then they'll have to burn down more of the rainforest to make room for more lima beans and more cows. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> like, there's just not a good answer to that. So I no. think what, like, most administrations end up doing is being like, we have to take care of our people who have citizenship. Yeah, but we're not even doing that. We're not doing that well. Yeah. But public health is tricky because you have to go into a population and figure out what, what, once we figure out preventative health, I think America is going to be a lot better. Yeah. But until then, we're still like in the low 30s. So sorry, high 30s, like number, oh gosh, when's the last? We're in the 30s of top ranking healthcare systems in the world. Yeah. And we spend way too much. Uh, and we don't get nearly as good results, despite having some of the best medical technology in the world. I it's also think it's partially a product of population size. Sorry, like, partially the product of what? Population size. 
Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the countries that are very successful with socialized healthcare are very small as well. Or at the very least, their populations are clustered together in one place. Yeah. America is very much a country uh, distinguished by its space. That sounds like an Alice Isn't Dead quote. Uh, I may have gotten that from Alice Isn't Dead, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, like, I would say if you were an illegal immigrant um, who ended up here and was hurt for whatever reason, you know, on the job, uh, walking down the street, um, it would be America's job to make sure you didn't die, but also would be in their rights to say we are kicking you out of the country. Yeah, but what if that patient has, like, stage four cancer? Is it up to us to offer like end of life care or do we send them still dying to their own country possibly yeah, I, to die in transit i would i that's the, up to the country but i would say america has no like they're already doing you a favor by treating you at all so if they choose to send you back like they send you back mm-hmm. now it's almost impossible to do on a case-by-case basis but i would say like they could also, you know, say, like, you've been here for two years. Do you want to take the citizenship test? Mm-hmm. But then that also comes into, like, you have to do background checks. Like, I'm not saying every single person on the planet is a criminal, but, you know, some of these people may be. And if they've come here and robbed a bank or something and got away with it. Right. There's more, it's just more complex. I just wonder, though, um... like homeless people or people without uh, medical insurance can still turn up in an emergency room and receive emergency care. Yeah. Um, And that there are budgets in hospitals specifically, uh, or or like if you've ever heard the term of a safety net hospital, a safety net hospital is a hospital that all those homeless or uninsured people get directed to because they have the funds theoretically at least, to manage their cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, If someone coming to this country, even illegally, if they get hurt, I think you have to treat them or else it's like a human rights thing. It's like, are they less than our low-tier economic citizens because they came from another country? Well, that's what I'm saying. They have to provide the the service you need, even if it is to keep you from dying from whatever you're dying for for that time, mm-hmm. and then somehow transport you back to where they came from if that's how we're going to do it. Like, they're not just going to, like, say you can't have any, uh, I don't know, insulin and just let them die on transit, but... Right. Like, it's, it's like, you know, a one-time thing. We're giving you this so we can send you back because you're not our citizen and it's not our job to care of you every single time. And you're not here on, like, a travel visa or something. So once the, uh, the, the period of care ends, the government would use its resources to send them back? No, I would say the period of care begins and also overlaps with them being sent back. And once they're back in their country, it becomes that country's job to do it. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. Well, speaking of uh, ethics, I suppose, it's like, what if that country doesn't have the technology or means to keep them healthy? Perhaps that was one of the reasons they left. Say they need uh, insulin and they don't have regular access to insulin. Yeah, but like, how long have they been here? Like, why not just become a citizen at that point? And I know that's hard, but if you left your country for that reason, like, I don't know, how, how fast are you dying at that point when you just become a citizen? Well, it, it, it's hard. I mean, my, my, country, my, my parents came to this country on, on like a lottery, like a, like a green car lottery. <laughs> they, they were tremendously lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably have to brush up on my immigration law to know what it takes to become a citizen, but it's not like the 90s anymore. You can't just naturalize as easily. You probably need like a, a green card marriage or like. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. America's job to take care of every single person on the planet. Sorry. It's just not. That's rough, yeah. Like, America has never said we're going to take care of every human being ever. We do mm -hmm. what we... And I, I already think America oversteps most of its bounds by getting involved in foreign politics. Mm -hmm. um, except for ones that are major. And by major, I mean, like, World War II. <laughs> well, how do we know what would be the next World War II. It's like in the Middle East, you have groups of people completely trying to eliminate the other. Yeah, and I don't think we need to be there. But it's pretty similar, at least in that narrow definition to World War II. Yeah. But, the whole genocide thing. But, war, but we didn't get involved in World War II until... In, there was almost no ports that weren't German in Europe. Mm. It is such a big, or D-Day is so important. D-Day, we have no way to get into Europe to begin fighting towards Germany. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you have to be aware of what's going on in the world, but like, you don't have to go out and fight every battle because people are fighting somewhere. There's people fighting somewhere probably down the street from me right now. I'm not down there breaking up fights. But is there some kind of responsibility for doing good if you're able to do good? I, that's, I think that's up to, like, for me, immoral relativism is like, yeah, if you have the money to do good and you can, do it. Okay. And I think there, it depends on what you're doing. Like, people like Musk and Bezos and, I mean, Gates is better than most, but... Yeah, true. Um, if you're holding on to that much wealth and just sitting on it and doing nothing, I would say that's moral. Um, I don't think you should be required to give up, you know, massive amounts of money because you're just sitting on it. But I think you should be investing that somehow into a community or communities. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Bezos and Gates have both said at different points that they couldn't even conceive of spending all their money. Yeah, it's like in order to make as much money as Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, you'd have to make like five thousand dollars for every minute that you're alive. Yeah, it's, it's wild. <laughs> but like, I know I think Gates is on this. There's some kind of list of like 
millionaires who have pledged instead of like inheriting most of their they're going to inherit enough to make sure their children like you know basically are forever taken care of Mm -hmm. the rest of the money will just go to like different charities of their choice oh yeah yeah i think i heard about that and i think gates is one of them i don't know who else is on there who 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 might be on there wow to me that's completely fair yeah I mean, like, that's wild though. To like, I I can't even imagine how much money that is. Even like, just Google it, but still. Yeah, I mean, like, even like Stephen King probably has more money than he's ever going to spend. Yeah. Wow. Um, Or gaming, like any famous author, any celebrity. Yeah, like, Mm -hmm. I think it it reaches a certain standard where, like, if you're not going to use it, put it back into society. And they do do that to an extent, I think, but not nearly as much as they could. Yeah, I think there was some... I, I thought it was kind of a funny story how they reported that J.K. Rowling like, stopped being a millionaire because yeah, she just yeah. kept on donating her money. Yep. Oh, gosh. Great um, lady. Yeah. <laughs> She's got kind of fuzzy uh, beliefs on transgender rights, I believe. Well, I mean... Just because we don't agree with them, I don't know. Everyone has their opinion. We don't know what's right and what's wrong. That's, yeah, and that's why we're talking about this. Yeah. Um, I mean, as much as I'd like to support the, the, the LGBT community, I understand that there are people who don't. Yeah, that's how I feel. I don't agree with them, but... Yeah. <sighs> um, well, that just reminds me of... Uh, I won't say her name because she's not here, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, my nemesis. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> who, she accused me of being ableist because I called a book lame. Uh, that's that's annoying because you're you're taking a word away from its definition and adding feeling to it. Well, the original word lame was described like a horse or a donkey with a bad foot though. Well But you're okay. taking away cultural and contemporary content. Right, because uh I was listening to a story on NPR about uh about ghostwriters in France. Yeah. Until very recently, uh the French word for uh for a ghostwriter was basically the N word in America. Yeah. It's like uh, a ghostwriter was approached at a conference and was asked, hey, do you provide uh, N-word services? And this, this ghost author, who was, who was like, uh, I, I almost said African-American, <laughs> but like African-French, you know, yeah. uh, was just like stunned into silence for a few minutes because obviously, yeah, she knew what this person was asking, like for ghostwriter services, but <laughs> she was just stunned at the word that was being used. So she went on a crusade to, oh, I said crusade. I just defended yeah. a bunch of people. No, she, she went on a campaign to change the word from the French equivalent to the N-word to something like uh, borrowed pen or something, which yeah. turned out to be an even older word than that N-word equivalent in France. Yeah. And it's really hard to change words in French because they have, like, the council of word caper people. That's right. Uh, French is a very historically prideful language. Yeah. 
So the, the only way to win the argument then was to prove that it was a more ancient and more correct word. <laughs> yeah. But, but still, the, the meaning that we give to words, it, it should be able to separate them from their historical meaning. Like a yeah. lighthearted example would be the words figuratively and literally. I mean, now that literally also means figuratively because the internet is a terrible place, we have to accept that one word can mean two completely opposite things. Well, that can be your hill you die on, too. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like the word, I think the word clip. Yeah, clip means both to fasten and unfasten. Look it wow. up. I'm trying to think of other words that are like that. Isn't there a specific term for those kinds of words? Like words that mean they're opposite? Yeah, off the top of my head. No matter what word I forget, I will always remember lafologica. When you forget the word you want to use. Alright. Well, I don't know how much deeper we can go into this, so maybe we'll move on to <laughs> the fun topic of opioids. Yeah, okay. Well, um, so as I mentioned before, I study public health. And uh, Buffalo has had quite a problem with opioid abuse. Um, to the point that in 2014, there were 127 opioid overdose deaths, uh, 256 in 2015, uh, like 301 in 2016. And it, it has gone down a little bit in 2017 and 2018. But the, the point I'm trying to make here is that there are hundreds of deaths in the city of Buffalo attributed to opioid abuse. Uh, just for fun, I looked up similar stats in Atlanta, where you're living, and it turns out you're, you're doing a lot better. Uh, back in 2012, you only had like, um, let's see, like seven and a half deaths per 100,000 people. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, actually, hold on. Uh, so you have like 250,000 people, right? Yeah. Oh, no, wait. Yeah, you have about 250,000 people in Atlanta. Uh, so I guess that multiplies out to like 15 or 16 deaths attributed to opioid overdose. Yeah. However, between 2015 and 2016, even in Atlanta, it's spiking to about 30 deaths due to opioids. And it's, uh, it's definitely a complicated issue because uh, opioids were, were overprescribed starting in the 90s because they're very convenient painkillers. They're very effective in what they do. Um, and large pharmaceutical companies were pushing for 30 or even 90 day supplies of like Oxycontin or Vicodin. Yeah. Yeah, like Oxycodone and Hydrocodone respectively. Mm -hmm. um, and people don't need that much opioid-based medication. The, the problem with opioids, as I'm sure you're familiar with, like heroin or like poppies, uh, is that they provide a feeling of euphoria while also uh, providing a depressing effect on the nerves. So opioid overdose is, actually leads to a failure of the lungs to continue breathing. It's, uh, it's pretty ugly to see. Yeah. Um, is that what, um, she, what's it called? The drug that... What's it called? Car cartan? It combat, it, it, whatever, re-stimulates you? 
Is it Nar Narcan? Is that what Nar Narcan for? Okay, so Narcan, very good question, or suboxalone. Uh, it it isn't. It doesn't stimulate you. It just stops the effects of the opioids on the on the opioid receptors. Mm -hmm. uh, it just competitively antagonistically blocks the opioid receptors in your body to stop the high immediately. Um, I've been to a couple of training sessions for Narcan use, and uh, something that they warn you about constantly is uh, if you get someone out of their opioid high, they're probably going to be super pissed at you. Yeah. Like they're probably going to violently lash out at you because you have immediately shut down their high. Uh, my, a couple of my friends are like licensed Narcan carriers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, you, you don't need to. You don't need like a, a super fancy license to carry Narcan. In fact, if you if you live in an area or you know someone who uh, is at risk for opioid overdose, um, you can just go to your pharmacist and like get a dose of Narcan without a prescription. Just talk yeah. to your pharmacist. I uh, know these people took classes and like were very, I don't know, they seemed very proud that they were now allowed to have Narcan with them. Hmm. Maybe I'll have to look, at, look into that again. But just, yeah, uh, the, the, problem, the problem with uh, opioids, uh, starting with uh, dependence on prescription opioids, hmm. is that it very quickly, well, I mean, I don't know about quickly, but it, it generally leads to a path of uh, heroin abuse. Yeah. Because the problem with prescription pills is that they're expensive. If you if you're trying to go to a dealer with like diverted medication, like let's say a, a nurse steals some opioid medication from their office or hospital or whatever, um, when that prescription medication is redirected into illicit use, that's called diversion. Uh, so let's say prescription medication is diverted, it's probably very expensive. It's not really sustainable to keep on buying prescription medication unless you're like Jeff Bezos <laughs> or Bill Gates. Not, not that they ever would, not that I'm saying they do. Um, but heroin is a very cheap alternative. Yeah. And the thing is with heroin is that it involves injections, and that opens you up to AIDS and like yeah. uh, uh, Hep C and a whole bunch of other nasty contagious needle sharing diseases. Yeah. And if you have like an addiction to heroin, you likely have a bunch of other problems. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, and I think the cities where we see the biggest spikes are probably on major drug trade routes, but that doesn't mean it's not permeating the rest of the country. Um, for instance, I know Lockport, where I'm from, was is on one of those routes, I believe. Mm -hmm. And we had, um, you know how it's like illegal to buy like syringes at the same time or something? Right. Like that was your friend's old job to, uh, to, to report suspicious purchases like that, right? Yeah, like I know a drug group was like busted there because... They like the guy came over, bought syringes from him, where he worked as like just a clerk in the pharmacy. Mm -hmm. 
front cashier and like my friend like surreptitiously walked by and was like he's buying batteries so he legally had to report them and this led to like you know five people getting arrested because they were making drugs dang but then i also have to ask how would like deregulating all drugs affect the sorry deregulating all drugs yeah like if you just made like illegal to have heroin if you chose to have heroin Oh, my word. Uh, because what it seems like to me is part of the reason people do them to start with is that it's taboo. Lots of money. But deeply and no one gives a fuck. There's no uh, reason to do stuff like that. Unless you like actually have like a wish to have use heroin. Well, I mean, most people who do heroin... Uh, continue using heroin just to stave off the withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 like, the, their addiction is a disease that often leads to criminal activity. Uh, the problem with, uh, the, the problem with uh, court litigation regarding drug cases is that more often than not, they treat the addict as a criminal instead of the criminal as an addict. Uh, that was remediated slightly in the 1990s when they started introducing more drug courts. And specifically, what Buffalo did recently, in May 2017, they came up with this opioid intervention court, which is a drug court specifically for opioids. Now, this, I think, is like a model uh, that other cities should try to replicate, but other cities have difficulty replicating because it's, it's expensive, honestly. Yeah. Uh, what, what this opioid drug court does is that within hours of arrest, they have... Uh, these addicts, well, first off, this program is only available to nonviolent offenders. Okay. Uh, yeah. But within hours, they have them tested for opioid addiction, and they get them into treatment immediately with, like, methadone and uh, buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, they, they treat the addiction before they do the criminal charges. And often, uh, once they get to the criminal part of their litigation... Uh, they get much lighter sentences because they've addressed their addiction. Yeah, and they're less likely also to relapse because they're getting... That's right. Yeah, the, the fancy word for that, well, criminally, is uh, is recidivism into the criminal justice system and then uh, relapse in, in the drug world. Yeah. So, so yeah, hopefully they don't relapse into heroin and they don't... Oh, geez, what's the word? Whatever, they're not a recidivist into the criminal justice system. Yeah. Um, so, is there, there's obviously no one-size-fits-all model for this. But, no, um, definitely not. Is it, in the healthcare world, the ideal? How would you say that? Like, how would the world universally handle this problem? Well, there are a few different approaches. Um, one is to strictly monitor the prescription of these drugs, uh, limit the number of physicians who can prescribe them, limit the amount that they can prescribe. Like, uh, like when I got my wisdom teeth out, uh, like I could see my dentist, uh, like trying not to prescribe opioids. And I was just like, I, I had known 
Like, I got my wisdom teeth out, like, two or three years ago. Yeah. Uh, and at that time, I, I had known about the opioid problem in Buffalo. And he was like, well, we could prescribe you some Vicodin. I was just like, nah, I'm good. Just give me some Tylenol and Advil. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, don't, don't want to... It's not like I would get that from, like, uh, five pills of oxycodone. I forget which one lasts longer. I think it's Vicodin. That, no, wait. Oxycodone lasts longer. I think it lasts like lasts like twelve hours, mm-hmm. and Vicodin lasts like four or five hours. But uh, yeah, it, it's like obviously not letting physicians prescribe like thirty or even ninety day supplies of yeah opioids is definitely a step in the right direction. Uh, of course, prescribing opioids exists on this. Uh, it exists on, on an axis of, like, pain regulation versus opioid abuse. Mm-hmm. Because people can have real pain, and if that pain isn't actually treated, they're more likely to abuse drugs. Yeah. So, ideally, we need to get a lot better at dealing with pain, scientifically, medically, uh, before we can completely eliminate dependence on opioids. Uh, they're like also yeah, mm-hmm. probably like a you know limit major prescriptions of those to so like end of life service where people are in constant pain because they're about to die. Like Oh sure, yeah, palliative care. If you're twenty five and you had a pain surgery, yeah, so it hurts and maybe you need a light painkiller, but you like you're twenty five. <laughs> Your body right. heals pretty fast. Right. And actually, in terms of uh, palliative care, like end-of-life care, uh, there has been a lot of discussion regarding uh, cannabis use. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe don't deregulate all drugs, but maybe lighten up on the cannabis, eh? Yeah. Well, (laughs) speaking of that, like, recently, um, right before I got to this apartment, we got this email, and they were like, "Uh, hi, I'm your new building manager or whatever, and they were just like, all right, um... We are going to have the Atlanta Police Department walk the halls occasionally because we don't really care that you're using weed, but it just reeks of weed all the time. Wow. So now we just got, like, like every time I've walked out front, there's an Atlanta police car just right there in front of my apartment. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's both annoying and nice. I mean, like, it's, it's, I don't think weed needs to be regulated like that. Mm-hmm. But we basically live in a dorm, like with like thousands of college kids, <laughs> right? Um, and but for the could, record, there are no overdose deaths associated with weed. Yeah, but the problem is, is they signed a lease that said no smoking and no or in the apartment, so they're okay. already violating the lease. <laughs> I uh, think okay. that's fair, but I don't think like arrests for cannabis are fair. Like I think yeah, they. I think they could be charged to, like, remove the smell, you know? But I don't think, like, it's necessary to, like, arrest them and throw them in prison. Yeah, I think we could... I think our country can definitely do a lot better by eliminating mandatory minimum sentences for drug possession. Uh, because what what is it? Uh, the United States has... So we only have like 300 to 350 million people in a population, in a world population of like 7 billion, right? Yeah. It's like uh, we have less 
than one fourteenth of the total population of the. Okay, we have less. Than, we have like seven percent of the world's population, right? But we have a quarter of the world's incarcerated population. Yeah, that's a little insane. Yeah, because we throw people in jail for things that aren't necessarily throw them in jail for. Right. So I mean, deregulating weed, I think, would be a step in the right direction, but. But then, uh, do you let everyone in jail who is, or everyone out of jail who is in there for selling weed immediately? I mean, they're probably going to need some kind of rehabilitation. But, yeah. I mean, ultimately, I, I guess, I mean, let's be honest, they're probably still going to face some, de- some uh, uh, discrimination because they were a prisoner at one point in time. And it's already quite difficult for. Uh, prisoners to get jobs and like make a normal life once they get out of prison yeah um see like when i talk to my dad about stuff like that like mostly i'm for just like let them out you know especially if they're like 18 year old kids who were there in there for like six months because they sold like nine bags to people Mm -hmm. but my dad is like now they broke the law when that was the law so they should serve their sentence I'm not for that. It's like, just because the law is the law doesn't mean it is the law above all law and must be followed to the letter. <laughs> yeah, well, see, that's why I, I support, like, you know, even if they sold weed or whatever, because there's obviously, there's got to have been, like, killings over weed and whatever. Because um, humans are just like that. But like, have, you, know, have you met a pothead? Um, I don't think they would kill anyone. If you didn't give them their pot and they got angry, but they paid for it, they might. All right. Um, I guarantee you that this has happened at least once somewhere in America. Oh, um, but so, like, looking at the cases, like, you know, did this person hurt someone during whatever they were arrested? Mm-hmm. If it's just, like, they got arrested because they sold a dime bag to a high school, like, okay. Right. There you go. <laughs> Don't fuck up this time. Yeah. Um, well, actually, that's... Uh... It kind of reminds me again of the opioid intervention court that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. A uh, really cool part of that is that they're, they're, they're very persistent in helping people through their treatment. It's mm-hmm. like, even if someone relapses while on the program, uh, they'll still get like one or two chances before they're either committed to uh, an inpatient treatment center or to jail. And they probably won't get as much help in jail. Yeah. They, might, they do get multiple chances. Yeah. It reminds me of, it was one of the NPR podcasts where they talked about the guy who had created his own rehabilitation center because it was, I can't remember what country it was, but it was one of the countries that had no rehabilitation centers. I think it was in India somewhere. Okay. Um, because I, it, it's not, I don't think it was India. It's like one of the countries right around there. Um, mm-hmm. And basically, you know, like there was a word that said like, that meant, like, as long as you don't show the symptoms in your everyday life, we'll just ignore that you do it. Um, of whatever. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and this, so this guy had created a uh, rehabilitation program for people. And instead of, like, having, you know, like, three strikes and you're out mentality, um, they had, like, uh, he's like, I want you to be honest with me. Like, went out to a party and you didn't intend to um but you smoked weed uh or smoked weed like did opioids um Mm -hmm. tell me 
I'm not going to like scream at you, but I want you to be honest with me. And then we'll keep like working on how you can get better from there. And he's had like the same amount of like about the same success slash fail rate as American models. I feel like I heard the story too. It was, uh, I think it was through NPR. It may have been Radiolab or something. No, it was either um, This Is Love or... Or Rough Translation. Rough Translation. There's one of the two of them. Yeah, I, I think Rough Translation is the one. Yeah. Wait, no. What, whatever. One, one of those two, Rough Translation or This Is Love. Very mm-hmm. good podcasts. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the, there's research currently into uh, how to reduce withdrawal symptoms, because that is the major reason people keep using, uh, to reduce pain, because that's one reason that people start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, g- general law enforcement attempts to uh, reduce the amounts of these drugs on the street. Yeah. It, it, it's a rough, complicated situation that treats patients like criminals instead of patients like, like addicts. Yeah. yeah. In fact, um, quite often when people are uh, incarcerated, they'll only have like behavioral treatment for addiction. Mm-hmm. But really, the golden standard is uh, MAT or uh, medicine assisted treatment. Uh, I mentioned methadone and buprenorphine. Uh, methadone is a drug that's been around since like 1947. It's, uh, it's very simple to hook an IV into someone and just like uh, help their withdrawal symptoms. Uh, withdrawal, I mean, I've never experienced it myself, but from uh, patient accounts of it, it seems awful. Uh, it really, like, it takes about a week to detox off of uh, opioids. But, like, by the third day, the symptoms peak with, like, horrible nausea, diarrhea, uh, like, horrible cramping, uh, yeah. terrible, like, pain. Um, and then what that reminded me of when you said IVs, there was a recent story, I believe, in Baltimore where a man was being treated for double pneumonia and he was going for a walk around the um, hospital grounds and he was arrested and accused of stealing the IV. Oh my um, gosh. And no, he was African-American. Um, but you know, like, how do we treat... It comes down to, like, I'm sure a white for opioid addiction might be treated better than a minority. Mm-hmm. So, like, then we got to address, you know, systematic inequality. <laughs> And we're back to, like, the unending question of how do we do these things. <laughs> so, uh, we had a brief pause because John's laptop died and he didn't bring his charger to school. <laughs> yeah, that's on me. Um, I went into the room to get Ronnie after that happened, and I was like, how did he not have his laptop charger? You know what? I apologize. It's like I usually have my laptop charger... Uh, I overestimated like how much I had left and underestimated how much battery I was using before talking to you. It's yeah. like, oh, I've got 50% battery left at the beginning of this chat. That's more than enough. <laughs> nope. Nope. Sorry, Bob. <laughs> well, when we were so rudely cut off, um, we God. had brought up uh, people who had been arrested for possession or selling pot and uh, were in jail, and whether they should be released if 
pot was legalized all across the country. Yeah, um, you know, I've been I've been against mandatory minimum sentences ever since I first heard about them in a yeah. system of a down album. <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, I do all the way. I do agree with you. Depending on as long as they're not like violent offenders, like we said. Exactly. Um, yes. And then the other thing that came up as I was talking about um, people, uh, I told I was telling a story about the man. I think it was Baltimore, who uh, was being treated for double pneumonia, and he was walking around with his IV, and the police arrested him because they thought he stole the IV. And first of all, who steals an IV attached to them? Right, just like walking around the grounds of a hospital with a needle in your arm, just like um, yep, they're on the lam. But then I was like, so how do we? You know, like a white person would be more likely to be uh, have a lighter sentence than someone uh, African American or maybe even an Asian American or you know, right. anyone like of for, color. Like from a judicial sense, I I know that you're right that uh, black people are convicted much more often than white people. Um, I don't know what the distribution is for uh, heroin or opioid addiction. Yeah, it's like if they start out on prescriptions. Just like I don't know, it seems like they'd be they'd be whiter to begin with. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Right, but I don't actually have that information, so I can't speculate on that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I don't know where you wanted to go from here. If you had anything else you wanted to bring up. Well, um, in hindsight, I remembered that I had accidentally referred to Narcan as suboxalone, but that's actually buprenorphine. Uh. Yeah, so buprenorphine is actually like a different class of medication. Uh, naloxone, which is Narcan, is an antagonist, but buprenorphine is an agonist, which, funny enough, actually means that in a non-opioid user, it would cause a high. Uh, same thing with methadone. Uh, both methadone and buprenorphine uh, would cause a high in a non-opioid user, but... So yeah, go on. They, they prevent the high you would get from them, but cause their own high. For the most, well, the most important thing that methadone and buprenorphine do is that they reduce the withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, okay. they uh, they allow the addict to get through their detox, um, without as much suffering from the withdrawal symptoms, but uh, they do not cause the same level of high. Mm-hmm. Uh, as actual heroin or like like uh, oxycodone or hydrocodone would do. Yeah. Um, um, I was talking about diversion earlier, and like sometimes uh, shipments of medications do get stolen, and uh, it's just a funny fact that sometimes methadone and buprenorphine are stolen in order to induce a high. But the thing is, their half lives are much longer than uh, oxycodone or hydrocodone. So it actually turns out that, like, even the, even if people can get high on them, it's just not as fun. Your uh, internet's acting up again. Oh, I well, you so oh. you just you cut out a little bit. So you were saying their half lives are are longer oh. than uh, the the prescription or street drugs. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was the only thing I cut out. Yeah. Um. Oh, so earlier when we were talking about words that we got opposite of the wrong definition. Those are all antonyms or contronyms. I remember them when we went to grocery shopping for the recording. Um, and then when you put up uh, the drugs that reduce with 
drugs are toxic if they have their own high or other high as they just like the auto anthem of drugs. So yeah, yo, I, I think this is another thing we could bring into what is good and what is evil. Yeah, you know, it's uh no, that that is absolutely relevant. It's like what what's evil, the the person or the addiction? And for the longest time, the judicial system said that the person was evil, that they they chose to start this drug. And I mean, now we've we're just saying that the addiction and the drug itself is evil. And now we're treating the addiction instead of punishing the criminal. Yeah. I think that's something to implement across everything is like, you know, jails should be rehabilitation places for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, a serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> Insert Larry David gif. Right. Um, well, like, maybe a, maybe a thief. Yeah. Can, yeah. Be re- um, rehabilitated. And, like, yeah, it's going to take a lot of money and time to figure out these people's stories and why they're doing what they're doing. And even then, if they're, like, a kleptomatic, that's still a disease. Or is it, I mean, I guess. Yeah. I guess there is a disease. Most likely. Um, so, you know, like... Like a personality disorder, at, at, at least. Yeah. Um, so... I don't even really know. Did, like I was saying right before we got cut off, um, we're back in, <laughs> into the uh, the blurry lines of like, how do we answer these questions and where do we go with them? And we'll leave that to the philosophers, I guess. Yeah. But then you have to leave the, the actual practice of that ethical theory to the public health administrators yeah and this is bringing up like i've always said we should have philosophy is mandatory starting at middle school here because mm. people know how to learn or they know how to imitate things but they don't know how to think mm-hmm. um but uh you know i remember taking philosophy 101 uh which is a great story because i missed the final exam and still got an a huh that's great. Um, but uh, he, basically, he, the teacher, uh, who was a, an amazing man, but he spoke like eight languages, which is incredible, but English was the worst of them. <laughs> so we were sitting in his class like, what are you saying? Mm-hmm. Um, but he was like, you know, government agencies, like military, police all should have like a mandatory a uh, philosopher who's just there to like you know think through issues for them that they have that are hard and not even like answer the question but just be like here's everything i come up with you know like do what you will with it i'm just trying to point out things you might have missed mm-hmm. yeah maybe a fewer war crimes would be committed if people were aware of the effects of their actions yeah and then like something, I think I told this to you before, but I always wonder, like, you know, like I love reading philosophy books, mm-hmm. and I'm always like, am I just a person who enjoys reading philosophy, or am I a person who is a philosopher? Because I think you have to come up with something, a, a method of thinking or existing that's kind of new or like changes the way we think about life. 
Well, I don't know if you want to define a philosopher as someone who's convinced someone else of their philosophy. I think just by virtue of us being alive, that each person has their own unique experience that we can, like, no person can ever fully understand another person's experience. If you think about your own existence and you can put it into your own words, I think you're a philosopher. I don't think you need to publish to do that. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think you need to publish necessarily. But yeah, you have to express something in a way that's... Like, if you have a philosophy and um, only you do it and it dies with you, mm-hmm. and you haven't really... Well, I mean, I guess the people you interacted with are affected, but you haven't, like affect the world at large that we know if a tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it yeah Did no, crush that, que- that, que- that question is bullshit the tree obviously makes sound uh <laughs> debatable maybe it just crushed the philosopher and he heard it still there yeah i'm still there okay um but yeah so i guess we've gone to the area of you know, we'll leave it for the philosophers and the YouTube or the podcast chat and Twitter to yell at us for talking about things we only kind of understand. Hey, I mean, we can never fully understand anything, right? I hope that that's true because one of my biggest fears is like that this is all there is. <laughs> well, I mean, we know more about space than we know about our oceans, right? Yeah. It's like, there's so much to be gained from introspection, and just putting what you feel or believe into words is already halfway to understanding someone else. Yeah, and I don't know if we could top that line. Maybe we should end on that. (laughs) (laughs) Good deal. Say it one more time. (laughs) Uh, um... (laughs) Something like, uh, if you can put into words your own feelings and beliefs, then you're already halfway there to understanding someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Dope. So I guess what we're saying in this is think about the things. Don't exist merely on your preconceived notions of what's good and evil. Um, Everything's conditional, right? Yeah. Don't hate people because they're addicted to things. Yeah. Um, and we would. Oh, love... but but don't commit genocide either. <laughs> just just in case you were planning on it. Yeah. <laughs> let me let me uh, let me cut you off there. <laughs> um. But yeah. So uh, and we'd love to hear what people have to say about this conversation. Please don't yell at me for being slightly conservative. <laughs> uh, please don't yell at me for having bad internet. <laughs> Um, and bad laptop maintenance practices. <laughs> but yeah, so you can email us at discourse with two S's, so D I S S C O U R S E at gmail.com or at discourse pod, same with two S's, on Twitter. Uh, let us know what you think. Send us stories and uh, basically anything comes to mind when you think of this. Uh, we will be recording again so next episode will be in two weeks which would be the 26th i believe mm-hmm. day before my brother's wedding all right so you can you can talk about weddings <laughs> <laughs> sure all the contractual obligation tradition 
Well, the idea of weddings predates Christianity. Yeah, yeah, it's a contractual agreement. Yeah. So well, we can talk about that at a later time. <laughs> yeah. So until then, I'm Ian. And I'm John. And uh, sorry for just going up late, you know, moving and stuff happening. Yeah. But it'll be up to, or hopefully later today. Uh, and until then, I will, or we, not just me, will uh, see you next time. Bye-bye.